0: You're on Community Radio 2XX98.3 FM. You're with Scotty now, and uh, we are crossing live to to Melbourne. Whereabouts in Melbourne are you, Darren?
1: Uh, I'm Bayside, so just down the Frankston line. Nice. From Brighton.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. And Darren is joining us on behalf of Shareable. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, what's Shareable? Yeah, hi,
1: Scotty. Hi, everyone. Um, Look, Shareable has been around uh, since about 2009. It's a non-profit based uh, right in the heart of Silicon Valley, actually, in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Uh, And it's um, really been set up to um, drive a transformative vision of the sharing economy. Uh, And it's become, I guess, the number one news site on sharing globally. And it's, more importantly, an action hub for, you know a whole bunch of grassroots innovators to come together and figure out how they can support uh, the sharing economy in their local communities but for the common good um, not the sort of the so-called sharing economy that we often uh, hear about in the mainstream media in terms of the likes of uber and Airbnb but um, more of the <laughs> grassroots innovation that um, your listeners might be familiar with in terms of repair cafes, um, shared kitchens, uh, community gardens, urban agriculture, skill shares, food swaps, tool libraries, uh, maker spaces—those sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, we just basically have new stories coming out every day, and uh, trying to really, uh, you know, show people that um, not only is another world possible, but that it's actually already here, and uh, just basically appreciating all the amazing. Uh, innovative people and and communities working hard to, um, you know, support sharing uh, and support each other in cities around the world. Uh, And as part of that, we um, set up the Sharing Cities Network uh, Mm. in 2013. Uh, So I've been involved in getting that started right from day one and been the Melbourne coordinator of that network. Uh, And essentially uh, what that's doing, it's trying to really put... um, community and communal-based forms of sharing on the map literally in local communities. Uh, and uh, to do that we um, have a, this grassroots network where there's over 50 cities that have joined. Um, we run map jams. We've run map jams for successive years in a row now, which is a form of asset mapping and it's basically a way to um, uh, literally put the real sharing economy on the map in local communities around the world. So I've run a number of these in uh, in Melbourne over the last few years, uh, and we've actually had them in um, in Canberra. There was one actually in 2014. There was another Map Jam in Adelaide in 2014 as well. And uh, friends in Sydney, um, they just ran a really successful Sydney Map Jam last month at Camperdown Commons. So what that's doing is basically putting all these kinds of enterprises and community groups and um, you know cooperatives and and so on that I mentioned uh, literally on a map and doing so in a, a way that um, is about connecting the dots, um, bringing those different stakeholders together uh, and working with government partners, especially city government local government, to try and play an enabling role to support this this new sharing uh, ecosystem
0: would you like to just uh, tell us what the sort of what what the working definition of, of sharing is that you that you 're using at shareable it seems a bit broader than the uh the one that we tell our kids to do at school but sort of don't really do in our lives. Um, Yeah,
1: for sure. It is a very, uh, I guess it's important to realise that sharing is um, quite a contested uh, (laughs) term these days. And so uh, it it has been sort of, um, you know, co-opted, as it were, by a lot of the big commercial platforms. And so there's a lot of share washing um, that's going on. But... um, (laughs) You know we we're shareable you know and, and following the footsteps of the, the co-founder Neil Gorenflot, we actually talk about um, you know transformational sharing in contrast with transactional sharing. so there's quite a, a different thing going on there. Um, so if you think about uh, you know, maybe some grounding it in some examples would be good. Um, so if we talk about say in the mobility and transportation space um, transactional sharing would be what you sort of see in your kind of uber situation where you um, you know you're, you're paying for a ride um, you're you're monetizing what would be considered you know uh, an idle asset like a, a car or uh, an idle worker quote unquote people who have surplus time um, and so they're using their, their their vehicle and their time to to try and um, earn a living, Um, although it's hard to do that on platforms like Uber. Um, Whereas transformational sharing would be a project like Green Taxi Co-op, which is a driver-owned worker cooperative in Denver, Colorado, um, which is actually owned by its 800 member drivers. And so there's actually democratic ownership going on there and, and governance of that platform, and it's what's known as a platform cooperative, which I can talk a bit about as well, but that's an example of transformational sharing where um, drivers are actually coming together um, to have a say in how their enterprise is run, and to, um, so there's two things going on there, the governance there, where they've got decision-making power um, in terms of one worker, you know, or one owner, one one vote kind of thing, one worker, one vote, and then you've got um, the um, the distribution of surplus, so any profits that are made, uh, circulated to the drivers themselves. Um, in contrast to extractive platforms like Uber, for example, where the um, most of the profit ends up going back to um, the founders and the venture capitalists and investors in Silicon Valley, and so on. And more importantly, the actual platform itself um, is, you know, completely a black box in terms of the algorithms. Um, the drivers have no say in the algorithms. There's arbitrary deactivation that's going on all the time. People are kicked off the platform if they don't um, have certain ratings and so on. Um, and uh, there's very limited control as a driver in terms of what's going on there, which is different when you actually um, have a stake in the business and can have a say in how it's run, and you can actually get to make up the rules as a, as a worker owner in that particular enterprise. So that's an example of in the mobility space. In the accommodation space, you know, similarly form of transactional sharing might be Airbnb where, um, you know, it's about monetizing, um, a spare room, uh, in your home. Uh, if you, if you've got a spare room, that is, and you, uh, so we're seeing, you know, the, the rise of Airbnb in, in hundreds of cities around the world having a very large impact, uh, in terms of, um, increasing gentrification in some cities, um, uh, nuisance and, 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 um, and uh, damage of common property air, uh, issues, um, um, you know, erosion of amenity in, in um, apartment buildings and that sort of thing with parties and other things going on. Um, but in terms of the business model itself, so it's monetizing surplus or, or idle space um, uh, to make a dollar, which is fine, but that's a, obviously a version of transactional sharing, whereas transformational sharing might be something like Home Share Australia, which is a a very different model which actually um, enables older people to stay in their homes for longer. So um, there's a lot of older people living alone in Australia, single single occupancy dwellings. Um, They have mobility issues. They um, want to try and stay independent as long as possible. So HomeShare Australia matches them with uh, younger people, generally students who go to university close by, and those students can then stay in that house Uh, for free uh, and uh, actually provide a a care role, a social care role to that older person in terms of um, doing a bit of um, shopping, uh, taking care of the garden, taking the bins out, those sort of things. There's an expectation that there'll be a few hours of work that'll be done um, to help that older person um, and in exchange that that student, that younger person will get to live rent free and be able to... um, you know, support themselves hopefully uh, in their transition from university through through to, to to work, and so on. And so, in every kind of category you can think of, there's more and more examples where, um, you know, uh, different uh, folks are offering either monetized versions of transactional sharing, or there's different uh, alternative visions of, of a transformational type of sharing, which um, is, is really trying has a broader kind of social mission and social purpose to drive. Change generally for the common good rather than um, just having a a profit imperative in and of itself.
0: So, I guess all of these things that you've mentioned so far are really about sort of getting access to something without having to own it. How does ownership sort of fit into the whole sharing thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the years with, um, you know, the the rise of the sharing economy and, uh, you know, also called the access economy, and a lot of talk earlier on especially when this thing became a big kind of trend a few years ago around, um, you know, access over ownership and these sorts of things. So, you know, while it's true that, um, um, you know, we're seeing a, a lot of younger people that say, sorry to pick on the millennials again, but uh, in terms of like car ownership, I think um, there's, there's probably less of an interest in people under, you know, say, 30 to necessarily own their own car, and and um, and also just you know city dwellers, but in, in high density areas, in parts of um, you know Melbourne and Sydney at least, um, there's there's obviously a need for things like uh, ride ride sharing or car sharing. Even more importantly, um, whether it's um, you know uh, car next door, which is a peer-to-peer car sharing service, or FlexiCar, those sorts of things, which is a, a privately owned fleet that you can rent out by the hour or by the half day or whatever. So people don't necessarily want to own these assets anymore. Um, they, you know, see the value in, uh, in, in instead of having uh, to, to own a car and, and, and worry about the, the holding costs and the maintenance costs and insurance and repair and petrol and everything else, they can just sort of uh, rent it out as a service on an hourly basis. Um, and, and, and that's all fair and good. That, that makes sense. And, and it's great if car sharing you know, actually can support, um, um, you know, a, a low-carbon kind of lifestyle and reduce our carbon emissions and footprint, which it does do in many cases in bigger cities and reduce congestion and, and those sorts of things. So that's all good. But I think what gets lost in um, the, the story around access over ownership and the kind of... When we just focus on that, we don't realise the fact that actually ownership is still really important and I'll come back again to the example of platform cooperatives. So while people might not want to own their own car, they, you know, I think there's an argument to be made uh, around people who are using these platforms. Whether it's um, a, a labour exchange like an Air Tasker or a, a Task Rabbit, where you might um, be wanting to perform, uh, you know, short-term work, run an errand, go and do some gardening for somebody or put their furniture, Ikea furniture together or whatever it might be that we're seeing with um, TaskRabbit and AirTasker and similar errand marketplaces. Um, It might be if you're a freelancer and you're using a lot of these freelancing platforms, um, the, the question of ownership comes down to who owns the platform and in whose interest does that platform, the business model, serve? So... What we're seeing, unfortunately, is a bit of a race to the bottom in terms of casualisation of work, um, very flexible labour market, where um, the, you know the the risks are being actually pushed out onto these workers in the in the gig economy. So this is really moving away from the type of sharing, the real sharing economy that Shareable is about, and we're moving really more into the gig economy space. And we're seeing um, this this notion of an emerging um, precarious labour force, people who are uh, you know, there was research done by the Australia Institute by the Future of Work showing how Uber drivers in Australia don't actually even earn a minimum wage. Um, and there's this notion that, that people like Trevor Schultz have talked about that um, the, the gig economy, the platform economy, um, it actually, it actually socialises risk, so it pushes risk out onto the independent contractors or, you know, the quote-unquote micro-entrepreneurs, but then it privatises profits. So then the, the actual profits, um, go back to, the again, the silicon, the generally the Silicon Valley founders and investors and venture capitalists who own and control that platform. So what platform cooperativism is trying to do, it's actually trying to merge um, plat- uh, cooperative enterprise uh, where you've got democratic ownership and governance uh, with the, the platform or the sharing economy. Uh, so an example in the, the kind of freelancer space, just to bring that full circle, would be something like uh, Stocks are United which is a uh, stock photography business in, um, in Canada. And it's a competitor to the likes of, let's say, uh, iStock or Getty Images or that sort of thing. But it's actually um, a, a worker-owned cooperative so that um, when you, uh, as a photographer, you want to sell your, your um, work on that platform, you get to join as a, a, a member and um, have full so say you know you have voting rights and you can participate if you like in the governance of that enterprise. Um, but more importantly, there's a um, there's an economic democracy story there as well in terms of actually rewarding the people who are creating value in that platform by giving them when they sell a photo, they split the license fee 50-50 between the actual photographer and the platform uh, provider itself. So there's a livelihood question there, which I think is so fundamental, and we're moving into the you know real. Um, interesting times with the future of work and the labour market and automation and AI and everything else. And so this whole platform cooperativism story is looking at how can we make sure that people working in the freelance sector, in the gig economy, working um, as photographers, as drivers, as errand runners, whoever it might be, as cleaners, people providing social care, if they're working in these platforms more and more, how can they actually be structured and run as cooperative enterprises to ensure that people have um, decent uh, pay, decent conditions and decent livelihoods. Um, so that's also part of sharing the sharing cities story in terms of understanding how we can create a fairer future of work through these, you know, using these disruptive tools in a way which is going to be supporting um, people and communities together collectively.
0: Do you reckon we'd be able to get the whole thing going under this, you know? I mean, will everybody be able to basically quit their jobs for the boss and, and live by giving each other their stuff or or getting together to create new sort of new ways of working? Would it be able to take over the whole sort of system and we could just keep on going as we were?
1: Well, I mean theoretically, it it really comes down to, you know, how much attention people pay to this and how how much they want to drive that kind of system change forward. Um, you know, again, folks in the, the, the platform cooperativism space, for example, um, talk about it as creating like an ethical slice of the platform economy or the new economy. So uh, you, might, you might think of it, you know, in the same ways that you would have as like fair trade or something like that, but those who want to uh, actually uh, make sure that, you know, that people are providing services... Are getting a fair fair go and are getting fair pay and conditions, then you would, you know, you might buy fair trade coffee or whatever it might be to make sure that the the growers getting, um, you know, uh, can actually survive and 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 um, and they're not working under exploitative conditions and so on. It's the same sort of thing. We're only starting to see people thinking about um, with this with a lot of these digitally mediated environments. There's a real um, disconnect and a cognitive dissonance that's going on where. You know, you just you tap away on your your smartphone to order a meal through um, Deliveroo or through Uber Eats or whatever it might be, but you're not really thinking about how the people that are bringing that food to you or driving you from point A to point B or who are doing your gardening or who are collecting your your you know shopping or whatever it might be, you're not thinking about well, what's their story and are they getting adequately rewarded and are they being treated fairly and can they actually um, survive and, and feed their families and keep a roof over their heads. So these alternatives are really about how do we um, reframe these technologies and these platforms and see how we can put them to work for people and make sure that they can provide um, fair livelihoods and decent conditions and so on. So the more people learn about it hopefully the the more um, these, these kinds of platforms will grow and, and flourish. And I mean I think we're seeing in terms of like the How how do these things replicate? That's what, I guess, the the sharing cities story is about. It's like trying to make these connections between the the social economy, the care economy, the solidarity economy and cooperative enterprise, the kind of disruptive tech stuff. And it's saying, actually, all this is happening in cities. And the biggest story, really, is that, um, you know, over half the world's population now live in cities. It's, you know, it it might seem a bit... um, Um, try to say it again, but we do live in the urban century, you know, we're estimated to have uh, over 70% of the world's population living in cities by about the middle of this century and so on. And then uh, so many of our current problems that we're experiencing, everything from climate change to resource uh, depletion to, um, um, you know, rising sea levels to um, food security, energy security issues, rising inequality, wealth and income inequality. They're experienced at that city-based level, at that urban level. Uh, And this could apply to... um, You know, this isn't just the the sort of big cities that we're talking about. It can apply to smaller towns and regions as well. Um, But so many of these problems and these challenges are experienced locally, so we have to actually come up with solutions at that level of scale too. To deal with it, and you know, as we know, at a at a, a international level, um, a real lack of action on climate change and, and addressing these concerns and transitioning to a just, um, you know, economy and a, and a, a low carbon economy, we're way behind on doing all of that. Transitioning to renewables, all these things that we're falling behind. But it's it's local communities working together with local government. I think that has a really um, exciting role to play. Um, and interesting market actors as well. So sharing cities is really about trying to bring civil society, the social sector, all these great grassroots projects that are kicking goals and doing amazing things that I've been talking about, bringing them together with supportive municipal authorities and with um, cooperative enterprise, social enterprise, B Corps, other forms of um, purpose-led organisations and businesses and seeing how they can collaborate and get stuff done together and so we're actually starting to see actual you know sharing city programs being developed to uh help achieve that and so like the first one of these in the world was in seoul in south korea which is um you know a mega city of 10 million people and you don't you you may not necessarily think automatically well how did seoul get to be the world's first sharing city um they've obviously one of the most advanced technological, you know, civilizations on the planet, super high-speed broadband and um, technology, uh, just saturated with technology and so on. Um, But also real high levels of um, depression, suicide, social isolation, major social issues as well, disconnection, you know, from neighbour to neighbour and so on. And then you have a really um, visionary mayor come in a few years ago who has a social enterprise... Uh, background and he saw the potential to try and um, leverage the sharing economy in Seoul to support better community outcomes and to try and drive um, support for solving urban challenges. And so the Sharing City Seoul project and plan was born and it was launched in 2012. And it actually is a way for um, Seoul to forge their own path in the sharing economy and to support their own local sharing. Economy actors, so they actually have a um, a, a series of um, firstly regulations and, and policy uh, proposals. So they've introduced legislation to support sharing, and they've made changes to car sharing and and um, car parking and food sharing and other forms of sharing in the community to make uh, to 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 un, to to basically remove some of the blockages that were that were previously there from uh, existing policy and so on. But more importantly, that it's about um, raising the general level of literacy in the community around the potential of sharing to support better community outcomes. And so um, they run um, public markets and programs and festivals to really um, uh, share the benefits of the sharing economy and soul to the local community. Um, they have a startup school, so they actually have a, a capacity-building agenda where they um, bring in a cohort of um, sharing entrepreneurs and innovators and community groups and others in to try and teach them how to run enterprises and how to succeed. Um, and they also invest money into designated sharing organisations and enterprises. So they have like an actual or formal sharing program to help them do that. But more importantly, they're o- also opening up their own assets and infrastructure to sharing. So they're actually walking the talk. So it's about city government seeing themselves as a, a key player in the sharing economy, not just... Um, Acting in a sort of you know, or reacting to the kind of bigger commercial platforms as they come in, but it's actually recognizing that they have idle assets and infrastructure. So they've actually opened up 800 public buildings um, to to um, the community for use during idle hours. So when staff aren't there, you can actually go and book space if you're a community group or a social enterprise or a youth group, whatever it might be. So you can actually use city infrastructure and city buildings. They have free Wi-Fi. They have open data. There's a whole range of different initiatives that the the, the, the city of Seoul, the metropolitan government of Seoul are involved in um, to try and encourage more sharing. And it it, it comes to the heart of governance as well. Um, They have various participatory governance activities that they're involved in to try and create stronger linkages between citizens and local government too. Um, And a big part of this really is about um, activating the urban commons, which um, which is actually the name of the event that I'm I'm going to be speaking at in in Canberra uh, on the um, 10th of uh, April at um, ANU Food Co-op. So just putting a plug in there for everyone to come around to the ANU Food Co-op at 3 Kingsley Street uh, on 10th of April at 6 o'clock. So it's actually going to be a book launch for for this book that I've been involved in um, writing for the past couple of years, which is Sharing Cities, Activating the Urban Commons. And the Urban Commons really, I mean, what that's about is recognising that the heart of our cities and what keeps cities going and keeps cities so livable and, um, and so, um, dynamic is, is the commons, which is the, the, um, the sort of the assets and the infrastructure that, uh, no one necessarily owns, but that we all benefit from together. So,
0: well, yeah, I mean, if you're looking at the commons, I mean, how far back does commoning go?
1: Well, I would argue right back to, you know, humanities, um, you know, arrival on the planet, pretty much. I think we uh, are essentially a cooperative species besides um, what we see in the the news every day. I think we we wouldn't be here for, you know, we're only 300,000 years old, according to (laughs) most recent scientific evidence, but um, if we hadn't managed to kind of cooperate and to common together, um, we wouldn't um, have managed to to, to last this long. So I think commoning is really at the heart of, um, you know, our success and and our um, ability to, um, work together as a as a as a species and as a community, um, either locally and globally. Um, but at a city level, it's becoming really important to understand how important our public spaces are, our green space, our open space, our open data, um, the laneways. Like if you think about Melbourne, um, the street art, the the um, the public parks, all these things are aspects of the urban commons. Um, so there's a risk that if um, we don't take care of it and and Govern it uh, and common it together as a community. Then um, there's, I think, there's a, you know various other enclosure movements. With, you know, if we think back a few centuries to the enclosure movements in in Britain, where um, grazing land and pasture land that was common land um, eventually became enclosed and made into private property. I think th- th- in that, that same kind of that same kind of enclosure uh, mentality is happening in our cities at the moment. Um, as well, uh, probably most visibly with things like um, the recent announcement of the Apple Store at Federation Square. So you've got a public square which has a, you know, a community interest charter. It's the only public square that's remaining in in, in the city of Melbourne, and um, and there's a private, a secret deal that was done between you know Apple, one of the largest corporations in the world, and the state government of Victoria to um, introduce a, to build a hundred million dollar Apple Store right in the heart of um, you know, Melbourne's Melbourne's public square. So that's like a highly symbolic example of that. Mm, but it's also well,
0: also. Uh, I mean, how how big does the commons get? I mean, and could you, could you include our publicly owned assets like the, like the communications network, for instance, and, and the roads and public transport and all of these things that are also sort of all staring at privatisation.
1: Well, exactly. So there is all this um, this infrastructure that um, is also part of the commons and that we all rely on. Uh, to to function as a healthy community and a healthy democracy and and as you know um, if if it is privatised and it's just a, a you know everything if everything becomes a private toll road a private park a private um, you know laneway uh, um, and it's all pay per use I think that's a very different type of um, you know environment that we're that we're moving into and and what's happening is a lot of this is, you know, by stealth and invisible when you're thinking about, like, um, the the sort of smart city kind of movement and the sort of, um, you know, move to introduce, like, a city-wide digital operating system to kind of um, track and respond to the movement of people, of objects um, to mine big data and so on. So when when city governments in particular, you know, are doing deals, smart city deals with... um, you know the the big technology giants. Traditionally, it's been the likes of IBM and Cisco and others, but more recently we're seeing um, Google and and others move into that space as well. So, you know, there's there's all that that new kind of um, digital infrastructure which we don't really think about or don't really see. And and when that becomes privatized, I think that is quite a, a kind of um, undemocratic. Um, kind of move which we should kind of try to avoid i think we 've got to have much more collaboration between um, citizens uh, and and cities around you know who who wins and who loses in these scenarios when those when that infrastructure is privatized and when these big technology giants are starting to have a much more powerful role in city building so the example being uh, in toronto uh, a google subsidiary uh, called sidewalk labs just want to Big contract to redevelop 800 acres of prime waterfront in Toronto, and they're essentially going to build a um, a smart city from the ground up. Uh, and so, you know, how will that um, work? You know, what will happen to the data that's generated, the technology that's deployed there? Um, how will the um, you know community and the place-based economy that's there now be consulted? How democratic? Is that what say do those people have over the technology? Why are they using you know proprietary technology, and what kind of lock in does that create? You know, compared to say, you know, if open source software. So if you think about the, pl- the city as a platform for sharing, you know, the choices we make um, really do um, put you on a certain path and trajectory. So if you know you don't want to have a situation where um, you know, let's say the whole autonomous vehicle. Um, thing really takes off, um, you know, that's, you know, I think still debatable. Um, there are certainly trials going on around the country and around the world, um, but that recent fatality uh, in the States was obviously a, a tragic setback, a tragic for the individual involved and a, a setback for the autonomous vehicle kind of movement. Um, and so, but those technologies, like what happens if, say, um, um, the, you know, city of Melbourne does a deal with, let's say, Apple to introduce an autonomous vehicle fleet and, let's say, Sydney does a deal with Google. And so, you know, you you, you have a situation where you go to these cities and, you know, if you want to get into a an, an autonomous vehicle, you know, you've got like, you, you know, you have to get into a Google car or a, an Apple car or a Microsoft car, all these sorts of things. So, um, and we're seeing these technology companies moving more and more into that mobility kind of space and that smart city kind of, Space as well. So, um, um, you know, what does that look like when you have vendor lock-in at at a city scale? And which is why the the sharing cities movement is really much more about um, open infrastructure, open source tools, participatory governance. How do um, market players work with government and work with civil society together to make sure that we put citizens first and that we have human-centric planning? That we have Um, place-based economy, that we have community wealth building, that we have cooperative enterprise to make sure that wealth and job creation is being, um, you know, uh, generated in local communities and that um, we don't just have this kind of race to the bottom where we encourage people to just go down the path of the gig economy and the freelance economy and have extreme flexibility but no security and so on. So it's Mm -hmm. about looking at the, the, you know, the the alternatives that are out there recognizing that it's powerful, that it's making an impact in local communities and that, you know, every city including Canberra, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide can get on board Um, and, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to ask for permission, you can just start working with your neighbours, with your fellow um, social innovators, the, the community groups that are already out there and start to think about and strategize around how, you know, Canberra can become a sharing city, what does that actually look like and make it as, You know, meaningful and impactful as you want it to be.
0: Yeah, so we were mentioning the government before and it's it's a sort of weird player in this, isn't it? Because it's sort of the trustee for all of these commons that we were talking about and many more Um, but it's also sort of it's also under the ideological influence that it has to be a business as well and it sort of looks at itself as a bit of a corporation in some ways at the moment Um, How does that fit into the commons? Because as far as I can tell, in a commons, there's sort of there's sort of three sort of main chunks of things. There's sort of the thing that you're commoning, so they call it the transport system, and then there's um, the the people who are using it, who want to get together and sort of organise it, and they're the commoners, and then you've got some sort of system to do that. And I guess, is that the government, or, or should it be something else?
1: Well, yeah, what's interesting, <coughs> excuse me, is I think we're moving away from this notion of Government into this idea of governance and mm. um, really um, reframing um, citizens uh, from understanding them traditionally as um, city users, uh, which I think is quite a passive customer view of, you know, people's agency and power mm-hmm. and reframing that towards city makers or city builders. Um, so, you know, and, and then also... Um, reframing government's role especially local government, municipal level government's role um, uh, towards this notion of the partner state or the enabling state and by state it could be a city government it doesn't have to be a nation state Um, and we're starting to see a really interesting policy uh, innovation happening uh, in co-governance, especially in Italy um, interestingly enough and so an example of how the urban commons is supported uh, in Italy is through um, what's happening in Bologna. And it needs to be said that Bologna has a really strong uh, you know, social economy, a really strong cooperative economy. So I'm not suggesting that you know, what's happening in Bologna can easily be transplanted to Canberra, to Melbourne, to Sydney and Brisbane and so on. I'm not suggesting that.
0: But well, On the other hand, it's obviously far from impossible.
1: It's far from impossible. Um, but, but what's fascinating about Bologna, and it's now being trialled in other cities, they've got this um, um, whole urban commons program. Um, and again, it's like just a, you know anecdotal story was that there are a bunch of residents who were trying to um, get a park bench installed in a local park in Bologna. And they realised that if they wanted to, you know, intervene in the system, as it were, an experiment, which is a big part of the whole sharing cities movement is around experimentation. And if they wanted to, as citizens, you know, have a park bench put in, if they did that, that would have actually been illegal, right? So they would, you know, they realise that there's a real, um, um, you know, problem here that, that as citizens, if they want to be active citizens, the current regulations actually prevented them from, you know, going down that path. And so over a number of years working with, again, a very supportive local government with a very supportive mayor, they um, introduced this um, groundbreaking program for the care and regeneration of the urban commons um, and this, this idea of a co-city protocol, which is now spread to other cities where actually it's not just enough for us to talk about the right to the city, which is, there's been a lot of stuff in like UN Habitat. Forum and discussions globally in terms of you know sustainable development goals and how do we get there and and the Habitat Forum and talk of the right to the city this is actually about a right to co-govern and a right to experiment so you know it's one thing to engage with the community and to consult the community but what's actually happening in Bologna is, is more of a power sharing arrangement so co-governance actually means that there's um, there's actually um, uh, a legal agreement that the city is undertaking now with um, citizen groups. So you can go to the city of Bologna and say that you want to, um, you know, start a project, you want to, um, you know, be involved in an aspect of urban commoning, whether it's um, something like, you know, social streets, which has started in Bologna, which brings neighbours together to share time and skills and resources, or um, whether it's um, through, uh, you know, activating underutilised or, vacant um, land or, or office buildings or whatever. So there's groups that have gone to start up social enterprises through um, like a similar model to what we've seen like with Renew Newcastle and Renew Australia and so on. So they go to the city government and they propose a project and then actually enter into a collaboration pact, a collaboration agreement with the city government um, and uh, have the legal authority uh, to actually perform this commenting together with government and other stakeholders so it's recognizing that you know any form of government can't you know just exist in a vacuum and if we are talking about participatory forms of democracy you know it's one thing to have participatory budgeting which is really powerful and it's another thing to have citizen juries which are also really powerful and a step in the right direction but if we don't have some kind of shared power arrangement in decision making then what's it all about and so Bologna I think is 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 a shining light in this, you know, uh, emerging movement around grassroots democracy, around participatory governance and so on. And, you know, and it's now in um, five cities, similar kind of co-governance approaches are now being trialled in five cities across Italy. So that's like a really interesting example of how city government can work with residents, with citizens to actually co-govern together, to um, activate um, empty shopfronts, to... Um, grow food for urban agriculture to be involved in um, um, you know repair cafes to start uh, cooperative enterprises um, social enterprises uh, whatever it might be so it's understanding that local government has custodianship in many cases of these um, common assets and common infrastructure but that citizens residents have a stake and a say in how those assets and that infrastructure is stewarded and run and manage and govern together. So it has to be a partnership approach.
0: You are doing this sort of within a city or you're proposing it and um, how how would you define the city itself? I mean would you include the hinterlands that sort of reach out where the, the food comes from and the water comes from for the city or would you just sort of use the, the city limits or
1: I don't I think that's up to folks to work out for themselves, I mean, you know, if you're looking at a, at a systems level, it would make sense to look at it as a bioregion, wouldn't it? You're, you're looking mm. at all the, the water table and, you know, the, the, where's the energy coming from, where's it going, the water, the waste, you know, um, almost like from an urban metabolism point of, point of view and then, you know, understanding all those inputs and outputs, but then also understanding it from like an ecological economics point of view, right? So, you know, it might be, you, know, you might want to look at it as a bioregion There's um, other examples, you know, I want to go with, um, you know, instead of just cities as as being, like, capital cities, why not look at it as um, regions and towns? I mean, they play an important role as well. Um, And, of course, not not every country, like, Australia has such a, um, you know, uh, so many large um, capital cities. Um, Many other countries have smaller towns, which aren't as big as Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane... You know, even even Canberra and, and Adelaide and so on. So there's there's towns across Europe where there's only you know um, 100,000, 200,000 people or less even. So they they can certainly take part in these kind of sharing city um, programs. And they do like in Belgium. There's the city of Ghent, um, which is a small city, um, and they're they're really leading in um, in you know in um, activating their urban commons there through a range of these. Kind of projects
0: and that's what i've been talking about so yeah right so in in all the case studies that you've got sort of within the book and that you've looked at um is there sort of a, a really good size i mean there's the, the study that's been done on say it's about 150 people is sort of a really good size for about sort of how many people you can know properly and is there a good size for like a, a commoning in a city urban sort of sense i
1: don't i don't think so i mean you know, the case of Bologna, it's it's citywide, and with um, you know, a lot of it obviously makes sense to be a part of the local groups in your community in your area. But there's no reason why you can't connect those groups up and use the digital tools that are out there to do that. So I think it's about building those stronger community and neighbourly connections at a local level, but then trying to see how you can then replicate that in, in neighbouring areas and suburbs and communities as well. So in the Bologna example, they've actually got like a real-time map of urban commoning projects. So you can actually see the projects that are underway at any given time and then jump in as you want to sort mm. of thing. So I think it's just about getting started wherever you are and finding the others in your community. And that's, you know, partially what the Sharing Cities Network is about. It's about um, providing a community Hub for grassroots innovators and sharing city advocates to actually guide there and find each other and to start getting involved in asset mapping, which is really a community development process. So it's like one of the first steps to, you know, becoming a sharing city is around asset mapping, running a map jam, uh, which is essentially an asset mapping workshop where, you know, you'd, you'd invite all of the different um, cooperatives and co-working spaces and urban ag folks and folks working in community energy and local currencies and let schemes and, you know, urban forests and you name it, um, all the different, you know, if there's social care co-ops or um, childcare co-ops, you know, bring them all along to a map jam, invite them along, get the word out, and then start actually putting those initiatives on the map and connecting the dots. And so then you're creating um, an enabling environment. You're making the invisible visible. You're actually paying attention to this stuff and, Introducing it to others in the community, and that's a way to then, um, you know, help it, help it replicate, help it spread from one community to the other, and to, you know, more importantly, um, form partnerships to collaborate, bring local government players in. Who's there, who's there from, um, you know, the economic development team in city government or local government? Who's there from the, you know, arts and youth or ageing teams? From you know, you know, in 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 Melbourne, like for example, we've even got. Um, in city government, in like the City of Yarra, we've got urban ag facilitators who, you know, play a great role in supporting community gardens and verge gardens and planter boxes and those sorts of things. So you want to work with those people and try and shape those initi- initiatives together. But you know, map jams, you know, are one great way of doing that. And we've got heaps of resources on shareable.net. There's now hundreds of how-to guides. So how do you run a map jam? We've got a really comprehensive toolkit. What are some of the ways you get the word out? How do you um, facilitate a map jam. What are the tools like OpenStreetMap that you can use? Um, so all those tools are readily available. And then, you know, if you want to start a, a community project like a, you know, a shared kitchen or a tool library or a repair cafe, something like that. Uh, there's again toolkits and how-to guides galore on shareable.net with lots of advice for how you get those things started. And you can learn. Um, from the main you know news feeds all the kind of stuff all the you know thousands of initiatives that are around the world doing this sort of thing already so just in terms of like repair cafes which i've talked about which is one case study in the book that i that i wrote um that started in the netherlands about 10 years ago as one repair cafe and you know it's trying to address the fact that so many um goods go into landfill unnecessarily that could be otherwise um you know used for much longer so electronics clothing, footwear, textiles, you name it. Um, so Martin Potsmer, who founded Repair Cafes in the Netherlands, set up this whole movement, and it's just grown to over a 1,000 Repair Cafes around the world now. I think there's like six in Victoria, and there's a few um, around Australia as well. And basically...
0: Yep, there's even to, one in Canberra.
1: There's even one in Canberra. So <laughs> shout out to the, the Canberra Repair cafe. So you folks know all about it. I mean, they're just great. They're, again, like a great example of transformational sharing where you bring people who have broken goods together with fixes and rather than just like this kind of passive transactional relationship where you know you pay someone to fix something there's actually a skill share and community building um, exercise that's part of that you know that's key to it actually so you don't just um, you know sit there or drop off your item the whole point of a repair cafe is to um, teach people how to fix things for themselves so you go away from that event getting to know your neighbours and others in the community who so were also concerned about sustainable consumption and those sorts of things. But you also come away learning how to fix, you know, your leather boots, which were ripped, or learning how to fix your clothing so you don't have to, like, just, you know, chuck it out and get new clothing. So you learn how to fix your broken uh, electronic appliance or toaster, let's say, um, so it doesn't just go to, you know, e-waste or landfill, which is a terrible outcome.
0: For That's right, so. yeah. Now, we're running out of time, so I just want to run through really, really quickly some of the uh, the sharing city principles that are sort of outlined in the book. And the first one of those in there is solidarity. So fairly briefly, what's solidarity and what's its importance?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think it's, you know, solidarity is recognising that we're all in this together, essentially, that, um, you know, all these issues that we're facing, you know, one one planet got nowhere else to go, Elon Musk wants to go to Mars, but, you know, none of us are going to be able to you know, leave anytime soon, so we've got to actually try and figure out how we can work together in solidar- solidarity to support our common um, interests and our common needs, so, you know, when we see others in the community that um, might need access to um, nutritious food, we can say, well, you know, you can start a, a community garden because um, it provides, you know, not just me with access to nutritious food, but, you know, others in my community maybe can't afford it, especially in areas where there's, like, um, food deserts and those sorts of things. So um, the same thing with um, platform cooperatives. So, you know, the solidarity with people who are providing services in the sharing economy or gig economy kind of space. So if there's errand runners, drivers, ride-share people, you know, how do we um, create a platform for them which can actually distribute wealth and profits and surplus back into those communities to support the value creators so that they're working together in solidarity. It's not a, you know, rather than a, a zero-sum game where there's winners and losers, solidarity is about trying to cre- create win-win outcomes for everybody, hopefully.
0: The uh, next one's distributed architecture. Or is yeah, that sure. just houses every here and there? Or?
1: No, I think it's really <laughs> more about, you know, again, how do you have, um, you know, maker spaces in every community so um, there's productive capacity. So how do we leverage things like um, fab labs, maker spaces, either to fix things or to make things together through creative entrepreneurship? Um, and how do we have um, renewable energy cooperatives where there's you know people that are self-sufficient with um, their solar grids and their battery and their and their microgrids and so on? So it's distributed; it's not relying on a, a central point of failure, um, and it's creating access to. Um, you know, mobility to food to energy to these essential services but in local communities so that people either have a stake in how they run through cooperative ownership or they co-own and co-manage the, those um, services themselves at a municipal level where there's city government and the community coming together to own energy infrastructure which was seen in places like Germany and in New Zealand and elsewhere. So it's about that distributed architecture and it's about open source um tools and software as well so that again we don't get locked into proprietary systems all the time and that we've got open source alternatives so that people can um have access to code to design and so on um to support their own local communities for whatever you know um projects they're working on
0: how about uh, private sufficiency and civic abundance that was a, an interesting one i thought
1: yeah, so again, like all this really is about so trying to reframe things away from scarcity of not having enough to realising that in every community, we've got other people and people are really the the kind of heart of everything of all of this. So, you know, it, that civic abundance comes from all of us, it comes from the strengths that we have as a community, the gifts of the head, heart and hands, you know, as it were. So what can we all bring to our communities and how can we unlock that through these kind of skill shares, through... Repair cafes through cooperative enterprise, through platform co-ops, through makerspaces. How do we direct our energies towards supporting the common good um, and making our cities and our communities and towns as um, you know socially just and ec- ecologically sustainable and um, and fun and enjoyable as possible? And we've got to have fun in this process too, and realizing that there is abundance out there. That you know, it's not just about having a job, earning money being on that treadmill, that we actually can provide a lot of the services ourselves if we set up distributed architecture, distributed infrastructure, using cooperative enterprise, using open source technologies, these sorts of things, um, working together to make it happen.
0: And impact through replication.
1: Right. So that's kind of like addressing the fact that it isn't necessarily always about scale, that you can actually have um, sharing cities exist in hundreds of communities around the world as they do, um, but they're serving the needs of those um, local communities. So uh, they're you know, replicated um, here in Australia, in the US, in Europe, in, in Asia, elsewhere in the world, in Africa. Uh, and so it's about um, showing people what's possible and giving them the tools they need uh, and support they need to take um, the first step to make it happen in their local communities and replicate those activities and then connecting the dots and realising that there's actually a really strong patchwork of these projects and activities happening globally. And when you look at it together, um, from a helicopter view, there's actually a ton of this stuff going on and it's really impactful and it's really inspiring and transformative.
0: I guess the resilience is what struck me with that one too. I mean, you can imagine one massive forest-sized tree providing all of the things that a forest provides. It's not going to work that well, is it?
1: No, that's right.
0: Yeah. Uh, how about systems thinking and empathy among stakeholders?
1: Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, that comes back to the whole, um, you know, question I was getting at, at the start around the gig economy, that a lot of this stuff is invisible. That You know, it isn't just about using a service like Uber to get from point A to point B, but recognising the kind of technology that's there, the, the surveillance that's going on the underlying ownership of the platform, the business models. From a systems point of view, you're looking at all those things and understanding how is this affecting the drivers, how is this affecting city governance when you've got all these Uber cars on the road, um, how is it affecting how cities are functioning, who has a stake in this, who wins, who loses, um, and you know, uh, and, and whose um, interests does, does these platforms and these technologies serve? So when you take a systems view... You get to look at cities differently and understand that when we introduce these new platforms, they have um, sometimes unintended consequences, negative externalities, true costs that we don't value that we need to start looking at. And so sharing cities is trying to connect those dots and help people look at this from a systems point of view as well.
0: All right. Well, I think we've run out of time there. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wind up?
1: Um, Well, I'd love people to get along to the Activating the Urban Commons event, How Do We Make Canberra a Sharing City, the book launch and panel with myself and Edwina Robinson from Sea Change, Tim Hollow from the Green Institute, Meg Clark from Lynham Commons at ANU Food Co-op, 3 Kingsley Street, Canberra, 10th of April, 6 to 7.30 p.m. And also sign up to Shareable's newsletter. So go to shareable.net and you can sign up to our newsletter, weekly newsletter, and you can get a free copy of the book, the PDF version, if you go to shareable.net forward slash sharing dash cities. So welcome everyone to have a look at the book and, um, you know, help make your own city a sharing city.
0: All right. Well, Darren Sharp from Shareable, thank you very much.
1: My pleasure. Thanks a lot.
0: This interview was done in the studios of Community Radio 2XX, 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Community Radio relies on its listeners for funding. If you enjoyed this program and would like to hear more programs like it, please donate by going to 2XXFM.org.au, click Support 2XX and then donate, subscribe, volunteer or sponsor us. Thanks.